There was no evidence that Governor, that Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not? Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around in other people's elections? Well, no, 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 no. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rackets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. On this podcast, we discuss all types of different subjects related to rackets, such as organized crime, mafia groups, drug cartels, white-collar crime, political corruption, you name it. And a lot of times I'll have a singular subject for an episode, and other times I'll cover a broad range of topics, and that's kind of what I'm going to do today. First story that comes to mind is the fact that one of the top New York crime bosses, a guy named Frank Kelly, was murdered right outside of his home last week. Initially, it looked like a mob hit, and there hasn't been anything like this uh, with a top boss for, for literally two decades. Uh, but again, this guy was the, the head of the Gambino crime family, and he was murdered outside of his home in Staten Island. And again, what appeared to be a mob hit. The shooter backed his car into the driveway of Frank Cowley's home, and he bumped into his car there in the driveway. So that's that's what drew Frank Cowley out of his house. There wasn't any kind of like screaming or yelling, so it didn't look like a, a self-defense act or, or an act of rage. And basically what happened is Frank Cowley, he bends over to pick up his license plate off of the ground, and right then the shooter just shoots him over and over again, uh, something like 10 times. And again, that was on uh, Wednesday the 13th. Uh, I'm recording this now on Monday the 18th. Most people assume that this was like a mob hit. One of the main suspects, Gene Gotti, he's the brother of John Gotti, who's again the former Gambino crime boss. Most people didn't assume that this was quote-unquote a sanction hit, or in other words, a, an approved hit by the other mob bosses. Uh, but just a little background, Gene Gotti, uh, he was released last year, also was another guy named John Carneglia. He was the, one of the guys who was pres- one of the presumed shooters in the infamous Spark Steakhouse uh, murder that, that killed. That's really the, the murder that put John Gotti in power, uh, that killed John Costal. I'm sorry, Paul Costolano. Um, it was roughly over two decades ago. Uh, but back to this, uh, this crime from last week. The initial thoughts were that this was, a, you know, sort of a mob hit just because of those signs. It, it's, it's very precise in its nature. Um, you get this, this mob boss to come out of his house with no protection and you can shoot him right there at point blank range. Um, but today, actually, uh, the presumed shooter was arrested. Um, his name's Anthony Comello. Um, but by all indications, this wasn't a mob hit. Apparently, he had a relation, one of uh, Frank Cowley's, uh, I believe his daughter, that's who it's presumed. And again, this is still very early on. Uh, but that, that's sort of the initial thought is that it wasn't a mob hit. But, you know, n- you know, the authorities, they're not really ruling anything out at this point, nor, nor should they, because a lot of times there's sort of a lot of smoke and mirrors with these things. 
but it, if it were a mob hidden and that it, if that is the case it, it is interesting because essentially this this guy Frank Cowley had really run the organization very different than the way that John Gotti did John Gotti was just was always trying to, to you know get attention which is just anti the way organized crime runs and um, Frank Cowley was a guy who who brought things back to that very quiet way. I believe he's only been arrested once, if I'm remembering right, something like, you know, union-related. But there apparently was some sort of inner conflict within the organization because Frank Cowie, he did have Sicilian roots, and apparently his organization kind of relied upon a lot of individuals from back in Sicily. So essentially there was this sort of inner conflict between the Sicilian section and really the American section of the organization. Something that I'm always trying to do is sort of break down that myth that Hollywood has created in relation to the mafia. There's sort of this myth that they only kill their own. And the fact that, you know, you're seeing somebody here murdered in his home um, or just outside of his home, it reminds me of a guy named John Favara. And that, that name probably won't ring a bell for most people. But this is a person who was murdered, by all indications, by John Gotti. And, and what it was is that this guy happened to be living in the same neighborhood as John Gotti. And as he was driving his car in the neighborhood, he struck and killed John Gotti's child. Uh, which obviously is just, a, it's just an awful accident. But there was nothing malicious behind it. If the justice system had worked properly, you know, he would have been convicted for manslaughter. Um, this was something that the guy obviously felt very guilty about. Um, but at the end of the day, he was killed. In fact, his body was discovered after basically being dissolved in a vat of acid. Uh, so again, it's just another one of those examples that I try to just tear down that myth about the mafia. Other news, again, organized crime type of news. This one has to do with the rap and hip-hop world, and you all will probably be surprised. I don't know everything about the current rap scene, um, but there was a rapper named Self-Made Cash, who I had never heard of. Apparently, he's from the Detroit area. He presented himself as this sort of expert on credit card fraud. In fact, he actually had like a, a fake credit card on a gold chain. And the reason that his name's in the news is because the Department of Justice busted him recently uh, for a number of different counts of credit card fraud. This guy, essentially, he would rap about this in his songs. Um, but here's the thing. It was actually really sort of like a double racket because apparently, for one, obviously he got caught um, doing this. So he wasn't actually a very, very good at his craft. Uh, but by creating this persona, he actually would sell his quote-unquote services to you know any sort of dupe that wanted to learn how to engage in credit card fraud. And apparently he charged him anywhere from $400 to $600, but essentially what, and many times it was just, it was essentially just bad information. So it was just, again, sort of like a double, a double con there. And... I really wanted to stay on this subject of credit card fraud uh, because, again, it, it, it does come up here in the Detroit area. There was a group that called themselves the Free Band Gang. And essentially what they did, this was like a credit card fraud ring that operated out of Detroit. And what they would do is once they would steal all types of different identities, they would then go across the country 
and in particular go to different Walmart stores and what they would do is buy gift cards, usually a $500 denomination gift card, um, and then sell those different gift cards on the black market after the after they were acquired with these different funds from credit card fraud. And what they do is everything from clone credit cards, using uh, what you would call skimmers. You've probably heard that term before. Oftentimes it's on like a, on the gas pump where... If you, if you go and you swipe your credit card there, um, it's a way for them to steal your identity. Phishing, uh, you probably heard of that. That's usually like through the emails where it looks like a, a seemingly legitimate email and it gets you to click on a link um, and then it just installs malware and that's how they steal your, your data. And also just different data breaches as well of actually going into databases and stealing the information. Um, so at the end of the day, it was a really sophisticated operation. Um, you know, this this large group, um, if I remember right, they stole up to, I believe there was up to like a couple million dollars worth of identity fraud um, that this group was responsible for. But again, they were, they were busted recently. Um, and again, I got a point to the Detroit area. There was a major bust um, that was made by the Department of Homeland Security. And again, what I'm pointing to here in this Detroit area on, on these particular incidents, it's not drugs, it's not your traditional your traditional crime, but what they did was they found through the airport and the actual seaport, they made roughly around a million dollar seizure, and it was of all types of different counterfeit goods, everything from like Zan, you know, fake Xanax pills and fake Botox, e-cigarettes, iPhones, Rolex watches, etc., um, but again, there's just so many different forms of organized crime. Unfortunately, there's just this this massive world of organized crime, and it's not always just your traditional um, forms of like drugs and gambling and robbery. So there are a lot of international stories that I want to point to, and, and again, this this podcast has to be concise, so I can't tell you about everything. But I did want to focus on a really horrible story that happened down in Mexico recently. There was a nightclub shooting where, as of now, I believe that the total count was 15 people were killed. It was in the city of Salamanca, which is in in the state of Guanajuato. And this particular state in Mexico is, um, it's just, the crime rate has absolutely gone through the roof. And it's not entirely tied to the drug cartels. There's now, and it's something that I've talked about in prior podcasts, there's, there are different cartels that are specializing in fuel theft. Uh, because in that particular area, it's one of, the, one of the main pipelines for Pemex. That's the actual state-owned oil company of Mexico. Um, and again, that's where one of the main pipelines is located. Actually, back in January, after the, the newly elected president of Mexico, his name's Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, as he's often referred to, he had sort of a, a softer stance as far as drug cartels, but he had a, a basically like a tougher stance, or an openly or verbally tougher stance as far as this fuel theft. I mean, it's anywhere from like a $1 to $3 billion industry. They steal that much fuel in the country. And they've created this black market where they sell um, the gasoline openly there on the side, you know, on the side of roads. 
there's a lot of violence involved in controlling that racket. Back in January, there was a particular cartel, and they staged this sort of fake bomb outside of the out, outside of one of the main refineries there. And there was a note on it that openly threatened to kill the president of Mexico if he, you know, if he continued to pursue his aggressive approach. And by that, what I mean is, and, and this is something that his predecessors have done as well, um, and this all started with the drug war back in 2006, or actually 2005, but yeah, the, the Mexican government has been using the military to try to fight the war on drugs. Uh, but as this racket has grown, they're also using the military to try to fight illegal fuel theft. Uh, but to tie what I was talking about with the original story with this nightclub shooting, most of the authorities believe that it is directly tied to that same group that, that issued that threat. Um, and most people are pointing to a group called the Santa Rose de Lima Cartel. That's really one of the, the, lo- the, the main crime groups right there in that area where the pipeline is located. Um, and again, they've basically been at war with the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, and other um, traditional organized crime groups. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are the ones who, who issued that threat. And I've talked about this before, what they call like narcomontas, where they'll put up banners. Sometimes rival groups will, will put up a banner like that in, in the name of another group in order to get the authorities to go after them, to create attention for them. And sometimes it, it is what it is, where... An actual organized crime group is just sort of, they're kind of using like an ISIS or or Al-Qaeda type of threat. They just sort of put their banner up and they're claiming their territory and they'll kill whoever they need to. But yeah, again, back to this main story. There's a guy, his name is El Moro. He's considered the the leader of that organization. And the authorities did try, after this nightclub shooting, they did try to come in there and capture him. And much like El Chapo, he actually has escape tunnels. There's a lot of corruption tied to his group. Local news has actually said that the mayor of this small town has family members within the gang. The husband of his sister-in-law is known to be a federal police officer who was actually recently arrested. Essentially, the, the local police have done nothing. There was this major raid that was conducted by you know, state and federal police and Essentially, what happened is there were a lot of local townspeople who set up this blockade where they they parked cars and destroyed them and burned them in order to block the police from from coming in there or at least slow them down in the process. And afterwards, they essentially found that these local people were basically paid stipends with the actual logo of the organized crime group. And it came out to roughly about $77 a person. You know, as of today, the, the, the leader of that organization, he's still free. Some of the members of his group have been apprehended by the federal police, but he, he's apparently still out there on the run and probably going to continue to do very similar stuff. And I'd like to also talk about a, a couple of very interesting stories in Colombia. In particular, there's a, a federal case in, the, in, in Miami involving a man named Andres Felipe Arias Lieva. He is uh, basically convicted back in Colombia on a number of different corruption and embezzlement charges. He was actually sentenced to 17 years in prison by the Colombian Supreme Court a few years ago, but he managed to flee the country and come to the United States where he was seeking asylum. And it turns out that he did receive some help from various U.S. government officials. 
He was claiming that he was a, a victim of political persecution. Uh, but long story short, the Colombian authorities want to extradite him back to Colombia so that he can face criminal charges. And the U.S. is resisting this. And again, it's something that I've pointed out. There's so many cases where the U.S. is so quick to extradite people out of Colombia, but to get these different you know, corrupt officials back from the U.S. into Colombia, it's, it's, it's more of a one-way street. There's a really interesting story. I've mentioned it before, and now that some of the details are really starting to come out. And it's involving a leader of the FARC. His name's Jesus Santrich. And the DEA months ago claimed that they had all kinds of evidence that he was involved in the, the sale of like something like over 10 tons of cocaine, yet they've never disclosed the actual evidence. This is something, obviously, you know, the Colombian authorities, they want to see this evidence before they extradite a person because he's a really influential person. He was actually supposed to have a place in the Colombian Congress it's a major part of this peace process. My initial hope was that, that these charges were actually based upon real evidence, but the more we look into it, it just doesn't seem to be the case. You would think if it was, at some point the U.S. would start to show some actual evidence in order to be able to extradite him legally. But as of now, the U.S. hasn't. So here's the thing. There have been a couple of Colombian officials who have been caught accepting bribes in order to influence this decision as far as that extradition of Jesus Santrich. And guess what? The people behind it are actual undercover agents involved with the DEA. So, I mean, it, it just it looks extremely fishy. It looks really shady on the part of the U.S. government. I also want to talk about the crime situation in Brazil. In particular, what's happening at the Paraguay and Brazil border. There's a leader of the group called the PCC, a horrifically violent, mainly a drug trafficking organization, but they're just extremely diverse as far as their revenue flow, all types of different, just robbery and everything. And there's a recent story involving a car theft ring. You would think, okay, well, that's fairly normal, but there's a lot more to it. Um, this car theft ring it involved corrupt cops that helped to cover it up. And what they found was not only were these cars stolen, but they were being stolen and then sort of refabricated in order to be used for drug smuggling. In other words, to where you could hollow out a certain part of the car in order to smuggle drugs. There's just so much going on there. And I, one of the things I really want to point to is a story that, again, on just the southern side of the border there with Paraguay, has to do with the, the president there. He's a fairly new president, uh, Mario Abdo. And he had a very public meeting with the, the new president of Brazil, Bolsonaro. And what they're doing is actually talking about bringing the military into the equation of essentially policing the prisons in Paraguay because it's just basically gone out of control. There have been a number of riots, um, in some cases actually taking prison guards hostage. There was a very, you know, high-profile international incident um, in which a leader of the Red Command, that's essentially the rival organization of the PCC there in Brazil, in which one of their leaders who was in prison in Paraguay murdered a woman. The specific reason was to avoid extradition back to Brazil. I think he found that 
the conditions were more favorable there in Paraguay. So he was just willing to kill a person just to be able to avoid extradition. That's kind of crazy when you think about it because there's just the crime level in Brazil is just through the roof. And there was a recent story, I'm going to link to it in the notes, where it just reads like something out of a movie, but this stuff is happening all the time. And they were talking in one incident about a series of bank robberies in Sao Paulo. And one of them, they were committing three different bank robberies at the same time. And it's not just your sort of traditional robbery where somebody comes in with a gun and robs the place. They're literally using explosives to blow up a wall, cars to come in there and knock down walls. Meanwhile, they'll have, you know, sort of lookouts who are, you know, heavily armed and just providing cover for the robbers and getting these shootouts with the cops. Basically, open warfare with the police, like a diversionary tactic. And in this article, they're basically saying that there's been 200 different of these types of robberies just in the Sao Paulo area over the last two years. That particular area is a stronghold of the PCC. I also want to talk about Venezuela. There's one story, though, that kind of fell under the radar, and I wanted to to mention it. It's the fact that there's a Kalishnikov factory. It's planned to be open by the end of the year. If you're not familiar with that name, that's the maker of AK-47s. I just needed to mention this. Again, there are factories for that type of gun all over the world, um, usually in different or often you know, countries that are sort of allied with Russia because it's, it's actually a Russian company. But we do need to understand a little something about the traffic of guns and the fall of the USSR, but it was basically, it created the rise of organized crime. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that there's just this heavy armament that's happened, and then you have complete political dysfunction, and it just created this massive market for black market weapons. Um, it was there in the USSR. We saw a lot of it the, in the Balkan region after those civil wars. And one of the fears that I have is there's a, a tremendous amount of political instability in Venezuela, and we don't know what's going to happen in, say, a year or two. If you've got a major factory of for for that kind of weaponry, it's it's just not it's not a positive development. In similar news, the same company unveiled a new weapon. There's a a military trade show that happened recently in Abu Dhabi, and uh, the Kalashnikov was showing off which what you could essentially call a suicide drone. It's just a very, really small drone that's that's made to explode upon impact. And while we're on the subject of you know, the weapon, illegal weapons and legal weapons market, it's a story that came out recently that the Trump administration is trying to push for something, a plan within the budget to essentially provide loans to our foreign allies for them to buy more U.S.-made weapons. If you're not aware, the United States is by far the biggest exporter of different weapons. Obviously, we're, we've heard of the stories regarding Khashoggi and Trump's reluctance to cut off selling weapons to the Saudis. The UAE is another major buyer of our weapons. Australia, South Korea, Iraq, Turkey. And there was a related story involving weapons sold to Turkey. 
And the U.S. is putting a lot of pressure on Turkey right now, and it's involving a weapons deal that they're making with Russia, specifically Russia's S-400 missile system. Turkey wants to, to make a major purchase of that weapon system, but basically the U.S. is pushing back and saying that they will not allow it. They're, that it's a violation of the NATO agreement. Me, personally, I just... The whole thing blows my mind. It, it just reeks of crony capitalism. My personal take, it's just... There's just a ton of corruption behind the weapons industry. And there's a recent story involving Spain. There's a Spanish state-owned company called Defects. There's a scandal. I mean, it's been going on for many years, but there's just more and more information coming out. And it, once again, involves the Saudis. Long story short, roughly $50 million is believed to have been bribed to different Saudi officials over, over the course of many years. That's really one of the cornerstones of the defense industry. And again, we mentioned weapons and we've mentioned the Saudis. And obviously, you know, it, it kind of alludes to the issue of Jamal Khashoggi. I do have to kind of remind folks, because after his murder, which is obviously a horrific murder, but after his death, there's been sort of the scrubbing of the record, presenting Khashoggi as sort of this outsider this very independent journalist, and it, it just wasn't the case. Um, he was very much an insider. He just happened to be, you know, there's so, essentially sort of this like Game of Thrones type struggle with the Saudi royal family, and he was just a victim of a, of a horrific murder because it looks like he was supporting a, a different side of, of the Saudi family. Uh, but again, he was definitely not an outsider by any means. Jamal Khashoggi's uncle um, is a guy named Adnan Khashoggi. If you're younger, that name is probably not familiar to you. If you're a little bit older, that name should be very familiar to you. He was basically the self-proclaimed richest man in the world. It was not an accurate claim, uh, but he was essentially one of the, the biggest weapons traffickers in the world. What he was was sort of the middleman in, in all these different deals. He was basically for the lack of a better term, just a, a briber on the, on the most grand scale. He just bribed different foreign officials in order to make all of these different weapons deals for, for different major corporations go through. And again, there's just so much corruption tied to the weapons trade. And in particular, if we're talking, you know, corrupt deals involving the Saudis, you can go back a couple decades ago, there was a major scandal by a UK-based weapons manufacturer called BAE. At one point, U.S. officials were trying to go to prosecute or at least investigate different Saudi officials. Oddly enough, after leaving the FBI, Louis Free, who was the former FBI director, he's had a very, very profitable career in the private sector, and he was actually one of the, the people defending, if I remember, he was defending Prince Bandar, who was fairly open about just how corrupt the whole process was. What appeared to be $2, two billion worth of bribes, and if I remember right, basically Lewis Free was trying to make the legal case that these were just gifts, they weren't necessarily bribes. Long story short, there's just a lot of corruption related to that industry. 
Um, but while we're on the subject of Spain and, and its state-owned defense company, there was a, just another really awful story that occurred involving embassies. And um, this actually happened at the North Korean embassy just a few days before the Trump summit with the North Korean leader. There was a break-in in the North Korean embassy in Spain. And there was a group of about 10 men who stormed into the embassy um, they took took everybody captive, basically held them down, put plastic bags over their heads, beat them while they were interrogating them. One woman actually managed to escape by crawling through one of the windows and running away. Um, and she called the police, and eventually they came there. But again, meanwhile, people, they were in there getting interrogated and beaten for roughly two hours. Um, the police show up, and these people... They weren't really too fearful of the police. They had a brief, like, verbal interaction with the police, and then they fled. So here's what happened. Afterwards, one of the, the biggest newspapers in Spain, it's called El País, they ran a story saying that two of the men in this group were linked with the CIA. Now, this story really didn't get any sort of coverage in the news. Um, it's, it's a really explosive accusation that was... It was unveiled by that newspaper. But instead, about two or three days later, you start to get this um, these quote-unquote scoops from the Washington Post and from Reuters. And here was, the US, here was the spin by the U.S. media, and they said that it was a group of dissidents that was trying to overthrow the North Korean government um, that conducted that raid or break-in, whatever term you want to call it. A group called the, and I can't pronounce it, the, the, Chio, the Chio Limo Civil Defense Group. And in my mind, it just, it definitely has all of the, the markings of Operation Mockingbird. If you're not familiar with that, that was a program that was unveiled by Carl Bernstein of um, Woodward and Bernstein back in the 70s. And basically what he discovered is that there was from over 400 different members of the media secretly working on behalf of the CIA. So just to kind of recap, you have this story that, that's really explosive in its nature, this just very damaging report linking the CIA with a very violent break-in right before um, this major meeting um, and to try and grab intelligence to, to try to have the upper hand as far as the negotiation is concerned. Again, it was not as not as violent as the Khashoggi embassy by any means, but really this is a criminal act, a violent act that seems to have been conducted by our main intelligence agency. But at the end of the day, what you saw within the U.S. media was them burying the lead. Um, they did mention and refer to the report by El Pais, but it's buried down, way down um, in the text of the story. So the headline is basically pointing to dissident groups overthrowing, trying, you know, who are trying to overthrow the Kim regime in North Korea. We'll see how this, this story ages. Personally, I don't think that the two different angles have to be mutually exclusive. In other words, it could, very well could have been this North Korean dissident group who broke in to, into the North Korean embassy. But they could have also been assisted and aided by different their CIA agents or they don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive.
There's a lot of really negative news involving international geopolitics. In particular, we can really point to the the People's Liberation Army Unit of China. They really act in a very brazen way. Last month, there was a breach of um, Australia's parliament. The timing was particularly notable because this was right before a major election. China has done a number of different hacks against Australia, in particular their their Bureau of Meteorology, their defense systems, um, and it seems to be something that they use in order to negotiate. They're trying to grow as an international power. And one of the ways that Australia and China are bumping heads, it's, it's over a couple of different trade issues. The U.S. and Australia seem to have the same policy regarding the Chinese company Huawei's 5G phone network. There's a lot of concern that the 5G network of Huawei will be used essentially as an espionage tool um, for good reason. So, But in relation to this tough stance that Australia has taken, China has started by actually blocking the coal imports from Australia. So again, there, there's a lot of these types of negotiations going on And at the same time, you're seeing these very high-level, blatant hacking attempts by the Chinese government that that seem to be successful. And you would certainly be led to believe that they're using the information there to gain leverage in these negotiations. Uh, But again, back to Hawaii there. Um, It's been a story all over the news. Personally, I, I do have a lot of concern involving Hawaii's 5G network. I do also have to point out some of the hypocrisy. Again, the United States government's pointed out the, the, the risk for espionage with that network, but we don't like to really point out that our own NSA doesn't exactly have a, a great track record with personal freedom or civil liberties. Um, just to remind you, with the Snowden leaks, we found out that basically every major cell phone provider has sort of this back channel that the NSA uses uh, to spy on us and, and completely violate all of our civil rights. Uh, but again, back to China here, a really disturbing story is that th- there's been a lot of pressure on Pakistan. The new president in, in Pakistan certainly has seemed to side, or maybe not side, but not really take a strong stance on the, the domestic terrorism that exists in Pakistan. There are a number of different terrorist groups that essentially seem to have safe haven there. And he's um, seemingly has a very strong nationalist approach. And there's long been this rivalry between India and Pakistan. A lot of it has to do with this disputed area of Kashmir. Again, this has been going on long before Imran Khan was elected president but it has been intensifying. There have been a number of different attacks, and there was recently an attack uh, by the group JEM, Jaish o Mohammed. What's happened is the UN has tried to blacklist this group that is behind that killing, uh, but Pakistan has, has not taken any action. Again, there's this U.S. I'm sorry, UN pressure to, to start to you know, blacklist a bona fide terrorist organization um, because the Pakistan government isn't taking the necessary action. But China has said that they will block any type of vote against Pakistan. 
this is a, just a long-term trend that we're seeing as far as China and just it's just a horrible human rights record. It's not just their lousy human rights record within their country. It's that China often is siding with these different morally bankrupt regimes. I'm on that subject of UN votes and how these sort of coalitions can type and exist. There was a recent story and it involves sort of these sort of back channel type deals. And by that I'm referring to there's a former ambassador to Iran of South Africa. His name's Yusuf Saluji. I think that's how you pronounce it. He's accused of passing on bribes to a number of different Iranian officials in order for a major cell phone company in South Africa to gain their contract in the country. That cell phone company is called MTN. Again, this, this reportedly occurred several years ago. In fact, there was a federal lawsuit seven years ago in the United States. And the lawsuit was filed by a Turkish company called Turkcell. They were they held the major contract there in Iran. And what they've done is they've accused our different members of this major cell phone company in South Africa of being involved in this corruption scheme. But here's where you know it gets particularly interesting. It's the fact that they they've accused the South African company of not only providing these bribes. But the fact that they have a lot of political connections in South Africa of guaranteeing that the South African government would vote to protect Iran's nuclear program with the UN. So again, something, this corruption scandal that's been around for, you know, it's been, this activity reportedly occurred, you know, over 10 years ago, but actually just recently, I believe um, earlier this month or last month, that former ambassador was actually arrested in South Africa. So maybe we'll actually start to to get some more of these details um, as that unfolds. The last story that I really want to point to, um, I don't do a whole lot of media criticism on this show, uh, but there was one story by the AP that I just absolutely had to comment upon. It's titled, Canada's No Sex, No Money Scandal Could Topple Trudeau. And by that, they're referring to the uh, Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. It's an article that really is trying to shine the most positive light possible on the Prime Minister of Canada, when I just don't think that, bearing the facts of this case, that that's appropriate. Um, So basically, there's a Canadian company called SNC-Lavalin, and they're accused of offering around $35 million worth of bribes to public officials back in Libya. Um, Now, this isn't recent. This is back when Gaddafi was in power. I mean, obviously, just a known kleptocrat, awful human human being. But one of the quotes in the article is this. It's a pseudo-scandal. It's crap. What the hell? You're doing business in Libya and you're not bribing? That was said by Robert Bothwell, a professor of Canadian history and international relations at the University of Toronto. So basically, the whole gist of this scam, of this article is saying, well, there's no sex, there was no bribe taken by Trudeau. So essentially, what he did was basically try to try to make sure that the Justice Department didn't file any charges against this Canadian company. And his 
justification is that he's just trying to protect jobs in his country. But again, as of now, it doesn't appear that he you know, didn't accept any bribes, but he did seem to be trying to obstruct justice. According to this article, that that is within his legal right to do so, and I think that's kind of a contentious stance. But at the end of the day, basically what this author is saying is, well, you know, there's no sex in the scandal, but that that whole idea I take issue with. I think most people at this point are really tired of the sex scandals. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on this one, but I think that, you know, we're kind of over this. That's that's kind of an older mentality. We, I don't think that we put a politician on, on a pedestal anymore if, it, if we find out that, say, your local elected representative had an affair. It doesn't necessarily need to be the end of a, a political career. You know, what? as long as we're talking about sex between consenting adults and there was no sort of corruption involved, I think that people really have sort of liberalized. But yeah, again, this, this author's contention is that basically that it's no big deal to provide a bribe to a murderous dictator like Gaddafi. Well, you know, what? what's the big deal? I mean, that's kind of what I had been talking about this prior stories, and, and yet, uh, so I guess essentially what my point is, is there are corruption laws on the books for good reason. The United States was actually the first country to create these laws. It, uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practice Act, that, that goes back to the 70s. Now, it hasn't always, there's been a lot of politics behind how those laws are actually enforced, um, as I've alluded to in this story or in this episode and other episodes in the past. Anti-corruption is a very noble goal. You know, if you're conducting business and bribing these, these murderous foreign officials, it's not something that we should just look the other way at. When you hand over $35 million to a murderous dictator, that's literally blood money. Again, there's so many stories to look at, but these were really the main ones that I wanted to talk about on this episode. Um, if you would, give it five stars, share it, support the podcast in any way you can. That, that's all I ask. Really, the best way is to go out there and grab a copy of my three-book series called Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So until next time, thank you much. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You don't have a license. The price is $250,000. That's a monthly payment of 5% of the gross. Of all four hotels, Mr. Corleone.